And it actually is required to help the neurons connect to each other. You actually can't connect, you know, electrically or neurochemically. The cells can't talk to each other without this fatty lining on the, on the cells. And so you can't skip fat. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, this is our last medical series for this time around, and we get to wrap it up with Dr. Anne Marie Omelia, who is Chief Medical Officer and Chief Clinical Officer at the Eating Recovery Center. And for those of you who might be tuning in to the, for the first time with our medical series, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Michaela Voss, who is that fourth voice here, our co-host in our medical series. Check out episode 24, October 2021, to learn more about Dr. Voss. So Dr. Amelia is board certified in four areas, and her bio is in the show notes, and it's quite extensive, so please do check it out. But one thing that she shared that was very interesting is that she did all of this through a reading disability. It's pretty interesting to hear how she adapted to all the exams and all of the studies. Her approach in eating disorders care is let's get messy. We're going to try things if it's not dangerous, illegal, or immoral. We talk today about transmagnetic stimulation, different medications. She gives us a tip of something to try to help us maximize neuroplasticity and retrain those neurons that fire together, wire together. She also says how important nutrition is, talks about the white stuff in your brain, how to get your kid's personality back to where they might even laugh at your jokes. I know, it sounds really intense. So hopefully you enjoy our time. I do have a disclaimer that our guest today is clearly quite in demand. There's some notifications that go off throughout the presentation. I just didn't have the heart to stop her. She was on a roll. And if you listen through the whole thing, you might get distracted by it like I do. And that's just information for me that I can let it roll. I didn't want to stop her mojo. And to help us bring this podcast to other professionals in the field of eating disorder, please feel free to rate, review, and share. Listener Janice, who is a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, certified nutrition support clinician, and board certified in advanced diabetes, says, after listening to your great podcasts, I agree that supervision is so important. Even after, and especially after practicing for 40 years, we must keep learning. Thank you, Janice, for your comments, and I hope you all enjoy today's episode with Dr. Anne-Marie Omelia. We are here today with Dr. Anne Omelia. We're so grateful to have you. I'm really happy to be here. I will say that I'm not a very great public speaker, but I really do love talking about all about pretty much anything having to do with eating disorders. So I like that I was invited to kind of a casual conversation and we can just 
see what develops. I think that sounds exactly. Like really it's organic. Nice way to spend an hour together. Yeah, and we'll kind of ease you into it with some icebreakers. So I know that you're from Denver. You're in Denver, correct? I'm physically in Baltimore, Maryland, right now. But I do oh, live okay, there. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So my first icebreaker then: mountains or beach? Oh, great question. Oh. I'm a beach person. I grew up in North Carolina, and I believe strongly that the most amazing beaches in the world are are the North Carolina beaches. They're just amazing. But moving to Denver, it's actually part of the agreement I made with my husband when we got married that we would never go more than a year without getting me to a large body of water. And so in moving to Denver, we had to find the closest ocean which turns out to be Cabo San Lucas. So oh. that's actually where I go to the beach now that I live How in convenient. Denver, I Cabo. It's a very quick flight. <laughs> so. That's great. It sounds like a nice little deal you guys have. Yeah. He loves the mountains. I like the beach. So we've been married 34 years. It's all working out, out okay. <laughs> I've already learned something from you. <laughs> what I missed in my prenup. No, I'm just kidding. All right. What about this one? Breakfast or dinner? Oh, yeah, uh, dinner, dinner. I like to eat a lot of a lot of small things at a meal. Breakfast, I'm, I'm get up and go. I just want to. I wake up every day like ready to go. Don't actually want to slow down. But at dinner, when I'm in winding down, I actually like to have all sorts of different flavors on my plate. Kind of like some tapas and. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't have to match either. <laughs> You don't have to be, yeah, you're going to, you're just going to have whatever. It doesn't have to be this specific thing. Why are you in Baltimore right now? Oh, I'm, so we recently opened a residential treatment center. It's actually eight minutes from my mom's house. So no kidding. (laughs) So my mom is very happy that I'm actually in Baltimore. I bet, you know, episode three or four that we recorded, I recorded from Baltimore. We were at a friend's house. I was on an East coast trip from Mm -hmm. Virginia up to the Boston area for a family gathering. So yeah, it's My a family. beautiful day in Baltimore right now. It's oh, that's awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Well, the last icebreaker question is audiobook or paper book? Oh, well, that one's actually fairly easy for me. People are sometimes surprised to learn that, you know, I'm a doctor. I have four board certifications, all these crazy things, but I have a reading disability. So I use myself as an example of how we can get our brain to do hard things sometimes. <laughs> we can make our brain behave in a way that doesn't come naturally because I had to read a lot of books, but it doesn't come easily to me. So audio books, a hundred percent. You know, that brings me to my next question because our listeners are all from beginner seasoning to highly seasoned. And I like to bring our guests back to a board exam and maybe a funny or scary story that you might want to share with people so that they can get, get through it. And know that you're human too, and see how successful you are today. So, I mean, for me, keeping up on all the board certifications can get, so I'm board certified in general pediatrics, adult psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and consult liaison psychiatry. We used to call it psychosomatic medicine. So, so some of them, I actually eventually had to say, I'm, you know, that I'm not going to keep up with every single qualification for all of them, but I keep up, I'm, I'm, I'm very actively maintaining my board certification, especially pediatrics and child 
psychiatry, because those are the two that are most important to me. But there's so much work that you have to do to maintain all of these certifications. You have to read these papers. You have to take all these tests. And right now, I'm doing the maintenance of certification for pediatrics. And I'm Dr. Voss may be doing this too, that every three months, you have to take this online test. And so my whole family knows that, that I have to have it done midnight, <laughs> Eastern Standard Time. So everybody already prepares. My husband starts to mark it on his calendar for the night that I will have delayed it until the end to do those questions online and everybody knows not to bother me. So, so, so I, I, I do delay things. I procrastinate. I always get it done, but you know, that sounds very minute. familiar. Yeah. Has your family learned to? to oh. Well, I've actually, I've actually started blocking a half day of clinic, oh, so I forced smart. myself to sit down and do it at work. Otherwise, Just get it done. Yeah, instead yeah. of right up to midnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it might be the week of, but well, I, so I cut it right down to the wire. Yeah, one of your adaptations then is to do audio. You can't do the test audio. Oh, I mean, it's not. I mean. I, I read very slowly, but once I've read it, I, I know it. So okay. it's just a very slow process for me. And so I have to give myself a lot of grace and a lot of time around reading and, you know, and know that my skimming is not the same as everyone else's, but if I can get, especially for pleasure, an audiobook on the beach is really one of my favorite things. There you go. <laughs> Let's put all of that together. Having well, with your topics. audiobook. On the beach. <laughs> Audiobook on the beach while eating tapas. Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> all well, right. How did you how did you get through all of that board certification then? Because it's a ton of reading. So how are you able to successfully pass all of that? Well, all right. So here's another you're gonna learn a lot about me today. So I have two children and I had them during medical school. So I actually started medical school unexpectedly pregnant. So I I actually, this is one of the reasons I read so slowly is I often read out loud to myself, but my poor children didn't get the cat in the hat. They got microbiology. I mean, I decided they don't care. It's my voice. That's what they're listening to. So I would literally read my textbooks to my kids when they were babies. Okay. So now I'm curious if they, what they do. Well, my daughter did get in an argument with a genetic, with a science teacher around Mendelian genetics once when she was in eighth grade. And she said, I've been to med school. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, well, so speaking of how did you get into the field of medicine and eating disorders? So I was, so I actually was a master's level psychologist in rural part of Kentucky. And I found that there were kids that were hitting what I called the wall of biology at the time. We had a child psychiatrist that literally came for half a day once a month. And these kids that I'd been working with on behavior plans and doing all sorts of what I thought was really great interventions would see the psychiatrist and actually get a prescription for medication. And, and I would see them get well with the combination of psychotherapy and medication. So I became interested in becoming a psychiatrist. And so I went to med school become a psychiatrist. And along the way, I really got interested in pediatrics. So I, I'm mostly very interested in medically complicated psychiatric patients and psychiatrically complicated medical or pediatric patients. And where do eating disorders live? That's exactly where eating disorders live. Complicated. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so I learned first about eating disorders during my residency through the GI service at the University of Utah. 
all patients with anorexia were admitted to the GI service for NG feeds. That's, that was that the orders read the NG tube had to be placed within two hours of arrival on the floor. And I got really interested in these patients and I got to see really quickly just how much nutrition mattered for their thinking and for their personality. They came in, you know, expressing very little of themselves. And when we fed the brain, I got to actually meet the kid inside. I'm clapping here. I know you all can't see this as you're listening, but yeah, nutrition matters and getting that brain back online because then the personality comes back. And then, yeah, then the kid comes back. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see the parents celebrating it. I mean, you could see they weren't through everything they needed to get through, but they would, they would be able to laugh at a joke again when they first came in, they couldn't. And so early in my residency, I really got to appreciate this, you know, through the pediatric service. And that's what got me interested in really doing work at, on the consultly and done services at children's hospitals. And okay. so there I got to do more eating disorder work. Abby and I were just talking before we started this recording about the importance of fat in a diet of a child, of a growing child and their brain development, because there's the fat-free era and there's still people who are doing fat-free diets for kids. So anyways, I think that that fits with brain is made up of quite a lot of fat, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So, and I mean, and, and deliberately using that word when we talk about that and educate people about the way brains work is, you know, all of that white stuff on those pictures of brains at myelin, well, that's fat, right? And it actually is required to help the neurons connect to each other. You actually can't connect, you know, electrically or neurochemically. The cells can't talk to each other without this fatty lining on the, on the cells. And so you can't skip fat. Love that. Can't skip the fat. I want to start with a really probably basic question for you. I know you're really into kind of those edge cases where people feel like they've lost hope, but you want to provide that hope and and give all the chance you can. And I definitely want to talk about that. But first, I'd like to start with something a little more basic. So you talked about when you saw the kids come in, this could be adults too, that are really malnourished and are really struggling and have other comorbid diagnoses. Maybe they have some depression, anxiety, OCD, et cetera. What is your opinion or when do you feel it's appropriate to start um, some of the more traditional medicines for those comorbidities, meaning SSRIs or SNRIs, in a malnourished patient? So it really depends. So we know that a malnourished brain, whether you have an eating disorder or not, will often look like a very depressed or anxious brain, right? Malnutrition is associated just in and of itself with significant symptoms of depression and anxiety. So if there is a pre-morbid clear-cut history of a generalized anxiety disorder or an obsessive compulsive disorder or major depressive disorder before the onset of eating disorders, then I would be more inclined to start an SSRI low doses or other medications, low doses earlier. If not, then food is the medicine because we can't actually get any diagnostic clarification until we have restored nutrition 
and return the brain to a re-nourished state. And then we have to do a reassessment. So I look at pre-existing and long-term history. We know that the SSRIs, and we also sometimes use low-dose atypical antipsychotics. Those are the most common things we use if there's not significant comorbidity, if it's just really eating disorder symptoms as the presenting and most troublesome symptoms. We, we have to use lower doses because our patients are going to be much more prone to side effects. And also, they're just not going to be as effective until we actually restore nutrition. I mean, if we think about serotonin reuptake inhibitors, I mean, what is serotonin, right? It's 5-hydroxytryptophan. What's tryptophan? What's nutritionist? What is it? It's amino so it's acid, yeah. Amino acid. And where do we get it? We get it in food. So, you know, without appropriate nutrition, SSRIs aren't going to work anyway. Right. And so I guess that's what I'm getting at is I hear a lot of different opinions about when you should be starting those SSRIs. And some people say it's once they're at a percent target weight. Some people Mm -hmm. say it's after they've had adequate nutrition for so many, for such a time frame. What's your opinion on that? Again, it really depends case by case. It depends on their level of suffering. It depends on other physical symptoms that they're having. I wouldn't be starting most of these medicines if they're having significant GI complaints or headaches that are still part of their problems with malnutrition or with refeeding. I would make sure you know that they're not orthostatic, that they're not dizzy when they're standing up before I gave them medicines that could make that worse most of the time. But For SSRIs, I actually think they take a long time to work, and I'm usually not in a big hurry to start those. I start them low, and I go very slowly. There's not a magic percent ideal body weight that I would think about starting at. I think conventional wisdom is they probably don't do too much good before 85%, and they probably aren't optimally effective until a person is truly weight restored. But we can go ahead and start to get some things started as long as they're well tolerated before they've actually become fully nutritionally stabilized. The psychopharmacologic intervention that I think is probably most helpful for a lot of my patients during the weight restoration period are very low doses of the atypical antipsychotic medications. This is a, a period of time where people are cognitively and physically very active and feeling very uh, on the go. And so these medications, you know, we actually described to our patients or they've described them to me as brain blue, right? So again, low, low doses, but they're often having trouble sleeping. They're often having trouble sitting still, keeping their pockets on the chairs is what I always say. And so they're, they're, they're very revved up. And so these medicines can help them physically tolerate the weight restoration process, and it can help their brains, their their thoughts that are going one way, you know, on and on and on, and then another one will start coming. And it just feels like there's too much noise in their head, and it can help clear that a bit. So it helps with sleep. It helps with some of the cognitive and physical agitation during the weight restoration process, because that is a very difficult time for our patients. It's emotionally and physically extremely uncomfortable. And I don't usually expect that those patients will need to stay on those medications. Those are medicines like Lanzapine or Zyprexa or Seroquel and Quetiapine or Abilify. Those are medicines that we can use for that. 
Again, those are short-term medications to help manage the discomfort during that time. Whereas an SSRI, I'm actually not expecting to be that helpful for anxiety or depression while they're malnourished. Instead, I'm actually thinking about starting them for the future benefit they will have after weight restoration. This is kind of a, a out of left field question, but I work with a lot of teens, a lot of teens who are also on like some form of birth control. Mm-hmm. Is there any interaction between the SSRIs and the birth control they may be on? Dr. Boss? <laughs> not directly for most of them. I mean, I think that there are some that use the same cytochrome P450 system, but the ones that we commonly use in kids don't have direct interactions that would make the birth control less effective. Do you agree with that, Dr. Ross? I do. I also believe that an unintended pregnancy would have a lot of effects on their mood and their medication and the body image. Right. Yeah. So and the, we, the, the risks of being on the two together is very, very minor compared to the risk of an unintended pregnancy. Right. But there are, there are, for example, some anticonvulsant medications that we might use as a mood stabilizers. Those actually could actually interfere and decrease the effectiveness of the birth control. So that we would need to actually be paying attention to. So we would think about those sorts of things. But for the most common things that we use in eating disorders, they're we don't worry nearly as much about that. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like a big thing on the radar then. No. For the anticonvulsants, we definitely think about it, but Mm -hmm. yeah, if they're on it, yes. Or our Topamax is a common one that you have to be careful with too. But as far as birth control goes, please make sure they stay on it. If it's for for period regulation, as you know, that's another issue and that would not be indicated. But. Yes. That just gives them a, you know, false confidence that their eating disorder is not as bad right. getting periods, but it's not because they're healthy. <laughs> yeah. And I guess speaking of periods, so maybe kiddos that you get who are on birth control for the purpose of like, they have terrible periods, let's just say, and maybe they, I feel like it's different from person to person, but some will just do like no period. They don't do the sugar pills or whatever. If they were also in a state where their body wasn't allowing them to have a period, that state of malnourishment, is having them step off of birth control something that you guys consider? I will say that I do often encourage us to take people off birth control pills at that point, try to resume normal menstruation, because I think it is an important indicator of, of appropriate nutrition and health, overall health. And then, I mean, I actually, even if they haven't tried continuous birth control, I say, we, we, we can put this, nobody needs to have painful periods. Nobody. And so we certainly can, once we've established regular periods, then we, then we can probably take them right back away. Any, Dr. Voss, do you have a different idea about that? I completely agree with you, Dr. Amelia. And I work with adolescents. So the only time I keep them on a birth control, if it's for pregnancy prevention or family planning, otherwise I think the risks for them staying on it is high with an increased risk of blood clots and possible medication interactions. And the benefit is shown in evidence to not be there to support their recovery. So I take them off as soon as I can, unless like I said, they need it because they're sexually active. There's still plenty of 
well-intentioned primary care doctors, OBGYN doctors who put people, especially if they're athletes, on birth control pills so that they'll continue to have periods every month think, and, and thinking that that will help their bone health. And I mean, we know that that doesn't help their bone health. And so it is really important to get that word out there. And for dietitians who are seeing people on birth control for, you know, prevention of osteoporosis, I mean, it's important to know that actually is a belief that many, many prescribing doctors and other prescribers have, but it's actually not true for our patients. Yeah. And I want, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because it is well-intentioned doctors who are doing this for their patients, but it's not helping. We're going to take a quick break to recognize our sponsor for today, not only for the amazing care that they provide for our clients, but also for the educational opportunities that they provide to us first by sponsoring podcasts like this, but also if you're not on their mailing list, you will want to be. They provide a lot of free resources, continuing education for professionals. So Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Mood has 31 sites located in eight different states. Their fully integrated healthcare system provides a full spectrum of behavioral health services. Eating Recovery Center specializes in treating patients struggling with eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, diabulimia, binge eating disorder, ARFID, and co-occurring disorders. And Pathlight specializes in treating patients with mood and anxiety disorders, trauma-related disorders, and co-occurring substance use disorders. ERC Pathlight provides intensive treatment programs that are tailored for patients of all ages, ethnicities, gender identities, and expressions. For more information, you can visit our show notes or their website at eatingrecovery.com and pathlightbh for behavioralhealth.com. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because it is well-intentioned doctors who are doing this for their patients, but it's not helping. It's, it's hard for us as dietitians to help doctors who know so much more about the medical complications of life, of just, of, but to try to help those doctors understand that putting someone on birth control just to have them bleed isn't helping their bone density. And, and, and it may be giving them false reassurance. Right? Yeah. It could actually be harmful with regard to treating the eating disorder. Yeah, for sure. So you are known for kind of thinking outside of the box, Dr. Amelia. And I just really know that you believe in full recovery and working with early intervention as well as really, really difficult. I don't don't think you use the word seed, the severe and enduring. I, I, I do use it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about how you've come to that. There is full recovery and early intervention yeah. is important. Well, I mean, I have taken, I've taken care of some very, very, very sick people who have gotten better. I have colleagues in this country who are in the eating disorder world, doctors in this world and other professionals who I treated at, you know, at a very, very sick place in their life. And I see them now as, you know, 
as robust and contributing members of the medical community. And it's, it's, it's so gratifying to see them. I mean, I have some, I have, I have provided involuntary care for people who are now my colleagues and it's extremely gratifying. So I know that no matter how bad people present, there is always hope. And I believe that it's actually my job the primary part of my job in those patients is to carry hope for the family and for the patients. My job is to carry the hope and to know that with time, with patients, and with nutritional restoration, change can happen. And we won't know if people, we, we can't say that people have failed treatment if they've actually never completed a course of treatment. Mm. Many, many people have you know, gotten very briefly to a target weight and lost weight, you know, the only thing we know for sure actually is helpful in anorexia. This is why I'll never be a really rich doctor. There's no particular patent on this is we have to restore nutrition and we have to hold it there. And it's my belief that we have to hold it there for at least a year. And that's when the prognosis starts to change. That's been my experience that's my belief that we have to actually get people <laughs> nutritionally restored by whatever me- means is needed and keep them there. And that's so hard. It is so hard to hold the weight there. It's the hardest. So hard. It's it is so, so much hard. suffering, so much distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are um, some tools that you found either psychopharmacologically or? psychology wise that have helped those patients stay there or get there and maintain? So I will say that I want to put my energies into making sure that we have a system that supports those patients who are trying to do that truly difficult, I'll even say torturous work of maintaining that weight, maintaining nutrition for that year. So I want insurance companies to listen to this, that this is actually what is needed instead of the the revolving door for, you know, let them, you know, the weight goes down. I want people to get re up up to higher levels of care or higher levels of support, you know, when they lose just a little bit of weight, right. Or they just fall a little bit off track before they go all the way down again. So I want to, I want to put my energy into working to change that, but then how do we help them tolerate that, that, right. Remember I said, we don't, put a lot of weight in, in, in medicines until people actually are nutritionally restored. And that's actually when we start to see what else is there, right? That's when OCD will really, you know, we'll get to see real obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll get to see true severe mood disorders that have been dampened down, very sort of effectively managed with the eating disorder, right? So we know that the eating disorder actually has a function for many of our patients, right? It actually is working to do something. And in a lot of patients, it's actually been working to help manage really stressful events or things that are happening in their head. So maybe it's related to a trauma history that now we have to address. Maybe it's a primary mood disorder that was being dampened down by the eating disorder. It's often OCD or some obsessions. It's always self-esteem issues. This is when family issues really come out. So this is, so now we get to really get in there. I always say, let's get messy, right? So let's find out what else is there because now we are able to see it and treat it. 
So a lot of times, so this is where I will make a commitment to the patient that we will do this year. We will do, we will think outside the box. We will try medicines we haven't tried before. We will try therapies we haven't tried before. We will we'll try jobs you haven't tried before. Really, and nothing's, if it's not dangerous, illegal, or immoral, we will discuss it. Love it. <laughs> It is it is so hard to get people to do that because you mentioned even involuntary treatment. How do how do you help people whose brains are so offline to even get the help? And then yeah. Well, I mean, for the patients that I think the ones that have been, you know, most severe who did get better, we made this deal that you will maintain your weight for a year and I will, you know, we will do me and the rest of your team and whatever team I'm giving you back to, we will stay involved and we'll keep thinking, what else can we do? What else can we do for a year? And if at the end of that year, you say, I did it and I want to go back to the eating disorder, then I will go, all right, let's, let's talk about a harm reduction plan. Now let's talk about quality of life measures. Let's talk about me, you know, never letting you get below a BMI of 15 or whatever we're going to talk about at that point. Mm. But until you've done that, you haven't failed treatment. So until you failed treatment, I won't discuss that with you. Yeah. It's like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you're giving them that time frame to look towards. And how in the world? The only reason I did it was to prove you wrong. (laughs) Yes. Dr. O'Melia, I don't it's like, I did it so that you would have to eat your words. But I've never had a patient do that entire year and want to go back. It doesn't mean it's all over or that they feel great, but they, they can, they've gotten enough distance from the eating disorder that they can see it and they know that it could be different. But keeping your pockets on the seat when they're inpatient and residential, you know, that's just an example that you used yeah. earlier today, once they're out of their residential program, yeah, they have to be open and honest with you about how hard it is to keep their pockets on the seat. Right, right. And and we have to be doing monitoring, right? We have to have both their, you know, we have to pay, listen, 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 listen to what they're experiencing because it, it's really, it's awful. And we have to validate this and we have to keep thinking, what could I do to make it better? And we have to have objective data, right? We, we have to, we have to get weights. We have to give vital signs. We have to sometimes still have activity monitors on them. We have, you know, digital scales that send me the weight no matter where I am in the world, <laughs> um, you know, so that we can be checking for that year. So, I mean, they have to have had the buy-in to be, you know, honest with, with the data. Let me talk a little bit about when I say we'll do whatever it takes to get us through this year. You know, I'm very interested in brain neuroplasticity. And we talk a lot about, you know, your brain has been firing this way for how long have you had anorexia? You've had this now for, you know, 10 years. So, you know, neurons that fire together, just wire together, right? They just, they, they just get stuck, They've been wired together now for 10 years. Your anorexia is now the default. You don't think about it at all anymore. It's just what happens. It's not a choice. You would have to make an active choice to do something different. And it would feel wrong. It would feel so uncomfortable. And you have to do it over and over and over again to develop different pathways, to develop new 
neurons that are wired together and now start firing together. I do a little exercise that probably lots of people do this. I don't remember who I learned it from, but I, I do it fairly frequently, especially with kids. But I ask people, are you right-handed or left-handed? And usually those right-handed. All right, let's imagine that you develop some weird neurologic condition where everything you wrote with your right hand was a lie. Everything. You wanted to write true and your right hand wrote false. You wanted to write green and it wrote blue. Everything you wrote with your right hand from this weird condition was just a lie. What would you do? What would you do, Beth? Oh, gosh. I'm, I mean, I know that the listeners can't see me, but my mouth is just like dropped. I, I, I don't know. You would you, learn to write with your left hand. You would. And what would it feel like? Uncomfortable. And wrong and sloppy. Yes. And you'd have to make yourself do it. And it would be slow, but it would have to be very intentional, right? And I make them write with their non-dominant hand to demonstrate that they're writing like a, you know, a three-year-old. And every time you went to pick up the pen, what would happen? Your right hand would pick it up and your left hand would literally have to come and take it out of your right hand and fight for it and write messy, right? Mm -hmm. So write messy and it feels completely wrong. But if we did it over and over and over for a year, what would happen? What would happen, Dr. Voss? You would get better. Your right, your left hand would start to be beautiful writing and have the memory yep, to do all the neurons that are too. wiring together would start to fire together, right? We would actually, this is a demonstration of the neuroplasticity that is possible for all of us, right? Mm, and so the it. eating disorder behaviors, the eating disorder thoughts really have been wired into the brain. And so we have to deliberately do the opposite. It has to be intentional and it has to be practiced over and over and over. With family-based therapy, just taking us a little further, it's almost as if the kid is, their their brain is so attached to that eating disorder and they're so malnourished that they can't even understand. They don't even know their left hand's there. Right. And so the family-based therapy is the the parent is going to take the pin out of the right hand and say, I'm going to do this for you until you can do it on your own. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, the, and they might ask him to write lines with a sloppy hand, even though it doesn't feel relevant and it doesn't feel important at all to the adolescent, which is developmentally appropriate in a mm-hmm. lot of times that they're not thinking about, mm-hmm. they're just thinking about the now. Um, and so, yes, the parent functions as, as the way to, to start to rewire the brain and, you know, the brain gut reaction. And they, they keep going, even though the kid doesn't think it's important or doesn't want to do it. But you're right. When they can't pick up their own pen, the parent has to pick up the pen for them. Mm, I love that left hand, right hand or dominant, non-dominant. And Dr. Laura Hill does some of that as well, but I've not heard it put this way. Yeah. Yeah, That, that everything that you write with your non-dom with your dominant hand is a lie. Wow. It just, pulls the rug out from yeah. underneath you. But that is, that's exactly what the it is. is doing. Everything's a lie, right? It's feeding lies. So, so, but it's still very uncomfortable. And I start, I want to think about what are medications? What are things that we can be doing besides the practice, practice, practice for rewiring the brain? And so I've gotten interested in neuromodulation techniques that, that are 
truly, I'm really looking to sort of energize parts of the brain and get them to start to unstick and rewire. So I've gotten interested in transmagnetic cranial stimulation or TMS, where we take just a little magnet and we send an electrical pulse to a specific part of the brain. Just it, like it, I'm banging on my head with my hand. It feels like a woodpecker on your head, just with this magnet popping on your head. We do it for three and a half minutes, once a day, five days a week for six weeks. And we do it mostly when there's comorbid depression and it can help treat depression when nothing else has worked. I'm also curious about whether this would be helpful for a primary eating disorder without depression. Right now, the FDA has, has given indications for TMS for depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and nicotine addiction, interestingly. So, but think about, you know, what are the characteristics of an eating disorder? It feels addictive, right? And there's certainly a lot of obsessions and compulsions and a lot of mood dysregulation. So, so when patients have a clear obsessive compulsive disorder or a clear depressive disorder that has failed to respond to other medications, um, I'm moving earlier to thinking about uh, transmagnetic cranial stimulation or, or TMS. And that the side effects are minimal. Insurance will almost always pay for it if we for depression, if, especially if they failed other medication trials. It's painless and there's actually often very little reason not to try it. And I will say by the time patients have get to see, come to my office, they've usually tried a lot of medicines. So, so it's pretty easy for me to be thinking about that. They've already cleared medication trials that would have been required by insurance. And, and, so. and this is adults, I'm assuming. It is approved for adults. We, we will do TMS for adolescents who have severe depression and OCD. We require two board-certified child psychiatrists to do consultations for that because it is off-label. And so we're not doing that very often, but there is good reason to think it could help with this rewiring of the brain. And so really what we're doing is we're just sending a little signal and 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 getting the the wire, the neurons to fire differently. Actually for OCD, it's sort of an interesting protocol. Before we tap the head with the magnet, we actually do an exposure. So we upset the we upset the patient. We have something that actually triggers the want to, to do a compulsion. An example might be a, a patient of mine hated the color red and she was very severely eating disorder. So a thing that might trigger her is we would ask her to hold a red lollipop in her hand for five minutes. And then, so then we've got, we've really activated the OCD part of the brain and we are now tapping it with this magnet to try to rewire it during that time. So are you looking through like fMRI or something to see what part is activated or you already know what you're going to target? We already know where we're going to target. We have some muscle. So for depression, we target one part of the brain where we're actually looking for a certain muscle movement of your thumb. And for OCD, we're actually targeting a different part of the brain where we're looking for a muscle movement in your lower extremity. So, so again, we don't do this with all of our patients. We do this with the patients who 
who need help. It's, it's in combination of the whole package. Nothing will work without the nutrition. I say to every one of my patients, no one's ever recovered from anorexia while they were underweight. Not even one time, never. So, so without that, nothing else would do matters. But just that isn't going to probably get you all the way to recovery. And so TMS is, is one of the ways that we can sometimes support patients. It, it, um, it can certainly decrease suicidality. And some of that obsessive compulsive comorbid OCD actually has been meaningfully impacted for some of our most severe cases. Another thing that, I, that we're doing probably more than most places is we're doing ketamine treatments for our patients with comorbid depression, especially if there's associated suicidality. You know, often our patients are actually afraid to gain weight because they're afraid they won't be able to tolerate it and that they'll want to kill themselves. Often families worry very much about actually setting the target weights that need to be set because they're afraid their kid will not be able to tolerate it and that they'll kill themselves. And so ketamine is a medicine that has actually been shown to be quite effective in decreasing suicidality. And it works in a completely different way than other antidepressants. And so when the antidepressants that work on the monoamine neurotransmitters have been tried and haven't been effective, it is worth trying mm-hmm. another class of medication that works at a different neurotransmitter system. Yeah, because that I have a couple of clients who have done really well with ketamine, but there's different ways that people across the country are using ketamine. And so I, and that, so there's some that aren't, what is your recommended pathway? It's it's, it's actually, it's developing. We do a lot of intranasal ketamine at Mm -hmm. recovery center. And that's not necessarily because I think intranasal ketamine works better <laughs> or it's the, the best way to do it. It's quite easy. It's an easy medication delivery system when there's nursing staff around. Mm-hmm. Easier than starting IVs. So as far as ease of use, that's why we did probably ketamine. Also intranasal ketamine in another form called Spravato is FDA approved for the treatment of severe depression or depression with suicidality. And that is an FDA approved indication, much more expensive. And certainly if people access that through the insurance, they often have very good results. At this point at Eating Recovery Center, we're still mostly using just generic ketamine, which is very cheap, very inexpensive. And still needs to be monitored because I've had clients report convulsions or things that react. Yeah, we, we, we don't, Discharge patients with this medication. It's done with nursing involvement. We also have and and lowish doses. Um, and what patients will describe is that they it have a, a, a mild dissociative experience, and they get enough distance from their thoughts and their the the drives that they can see them. They're usually so tightly connected to them, but they just get enough distance that they can actually kind of see what they're thinking. And I've had patients tell me, I don't know why I'm thinking that. That doesn't make any sense. I'm like, yeah, we know. (laughs) But some of our therapists are trained in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And so that can actually be uh, another way of, you know, our patients are so good at avoidance. that it can loosen up some of the things that they avoid trying to work on. 
Yeah, that's what I've heard of is that the therapist yeah. is there with them. But, but it is important to know it is actually effective with the, the psychotherapy associated with it. And it is still effective for severe depression and depression with suicidality without that. At least you know, the FDA has approved Spravato for those indications. And that's not with a therapist. So and careful, feel- careful to say there is no FDA approved indication for this, you know, much, much less expensive generic ketamine but that we have had actually some some very promising results for our most severe patients. Dr. Amelia, I feel like we are just getting started and we are needing to wrap up. So I just love talking to you. Oh, this 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 time went so fast. <laughs> it did. I'm going to have to use that left hand right hand trick. I have like several patients in mind that I'm like, "Oh, what you're going to do, you're going to actually ask them to tie their dominant hand behind their back for a whole day, or at least for a few hours. And then they really get a sense of what we're really asking to do. And you know, you thought that was hard. You're, you know, retraining your brain to you know, do the opposite of what the eating disorder is saying. It's very uncomfortable. It feels sloppy. It feels wrong. It's so you're only just getting started, but that's yeah. Tie, yeah. tie their hand behind the back. That's a great <laughs> idea. Well, we do have a bit of a wrap-up question for you. So if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? That is a great question. So I talk mostly about taking care of our most severe patients here. There's never been a time when I'm talking to one of those patients that I haven't thought, man, I wish I'd met you when you were... 14 or whenever the eating disorder started a hundred percent of the time. I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have gotten there then because early intervention involving the family is, is, is critically important for full recovery. So early in full recovery is your best shot. And it's why, you know, when kids are young, when, you know, adolescent medicine providers need to know, you're not overdoing it, <laughs> you know, get the family involved. Let's get this thing turned around before they get worse. But so that's the thing I really wish I'd known is that taking it seriously, preventive work and early, early intervention makes all the difference. So grateful for our time with you today, Dr. Amelia. Thank you for joining us on the season, RD. Thank, Thank you. you. I had fun. Take care. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.